So our first scripture reading is going to be from the Old Testament prophet Jonah, and then we're going to read from the prophet Nahum. Reason being that God first addressed the people of Nineveh through the prophet Jonah, then about a hundred years later, he addresses that same people in the prophet Nahum. So first Jonah. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And the Lord said, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And if you turn with me one book through Micah to the beginning of Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken in pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Our tendency when we hear a passage like the one Steve just read is to either question God, God, why must you be so dang harsh? Or question me, why, Pastor Ryan, we got uh, visitors here this morning. I invited someone along with me. Why do we hear mostly about vengeance and wrath? Couldn't we have chosen something else in the book of Nahum? Well, there's pretty much nothing else in the book of Nahum. But here at sunrise, we exist to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by his grace. So we are committed to spreading Jesus' message of grace, that God activates his unconditional love through an undeserved gift of himself. He gives himself to us 
through Jesus Christ. It's a message very contrary to society, to the world in which we live, which is primarily operates by quid pro quo, right? I will give something to you as long as you give something to me. I'll put something on the table as long as you also put something worthwhile on the table. So we expect a thank you. We expect friendship. We expect kindness. We expect labor or money or invitations or open doors if we are to give something to someone else or to some other institution. And God says the only thing we can give to him in exchange for his love joy, and forever forgiveness is our sin. It is a scandalous deal. Scandalous. Luther called this the great exchange. We get to exchange our sin for God's love, joy, forever forgiveness, and His presence with us. It's certainly not what we would expect based on how the world operates. And the doctrine of final justice which we hear in Nahum this morning, may not also be what we'd expect from God. Especially when I say it is a loving truth. The reality of final justice, even wrath, is a surprising aspect of God's love towards his people. And that's Nahum's message to us this morning. The guilty will not go unpunished. Bullies who consistently hurt, cause pain, manipulate, belittle, use, and exploit without reaching out for God's help, will by no means be cleared by a just God. It will not happen. God uses this final reality of life to enable us to be people of mercy while we live in this world. So this morning we're going to cover three things. We're going to cover why justice is necessary, why justice is certain, and why justice is good. And there are going to be times this morning, guys, where it's going to feel hard, but we're going to see at the end This is ultimately for our good. So let's get to work. Why justice is necessary. Justice is necessary because God himself is the standard. He's the standard for doing right. The words that stand out in verses 2 and 3 that we just read are likely words like vengeance, wrath, anger. That's what sort of pops the light bulbs in our heads, right? But the most common word in these two verses is Yahweh the Lord, the name for God, the great I am. It comes up five times in these two verses, ten times in the short first chapter of Nahum. Why does Nahum repeat God's name so much? Because God, God is trying to say, in essence, I am the one who deserves to be angry, zealous, and full of wrath because people have failed to do right as I am. I love getting to be a dad. I love getting to be a father. But it's also a huge responsibility, as some of you dads know, and moms know as well. My kids watch me. They observe who I am. And in so many ways, they tend to model who I am. Sometimes in poor ways. Yesterday, my youngest, I was telling him, you know, please clean up your cereal, your bowl, the milk. He's like, ugh. And I hear him mumble as he took it away. Dad, you do that all the time. You leave it out. I was like, What? Of course, that was my natural reaction. Which, but then I looked at my, I thought, wait a minute. He's right. I am renowned in my, our household for leaving out my cereal box. And if no one else says anything about it, every evening when I get home, I'm like, yep, there it is. Dang it. But sometimes they model me in good ways. Mason is a diligent, self-starting worker who needs very little direction. Gage 
doesn't take himself too seriously. He can laugh at himself, and he's an encourager. What's that about him? Oftentimes, they don't model after me. I grew up looking adults in the eye, shaking their hands, saying, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and still do try to do this today and model that. Yet our boys struggle to do this. And and I shared this with Mason earlier. That can make me sometimes deep down angry. (laughs) Makes you deep down frustrated. And actually, it's right for me to feel this initially. Now I need to express my anger appropriately and respond appropriately, all those things. But anger is the right initial fatherly response to justice. As we talked about back in December in my my, uh, sermon on anger, anger is that first initial right response of saying that's wrong and it matters. Similarly, it is right for our Father to be deep down angry when those who He has created fail to live as He is, but they never acknowledge it. They never try to change. They never try to be different. God Himself is the standard. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He said this to His disciples. It's a high standard. He said, look, model your Father. Model what He does. Everything that is right and that is good. Model yourself after that. Now the good news, because it's very hard to do, is that God is slow to express anger because he wants all people to turn to him. Our scripture readings included both Jonah and Nahum because both are about Nineveh. Do you notice that both are about Nineveh, the capital city of an empire called Assyria. If you recall from past week's Assyria is really the first true military nation that shows up in the world. A nation that loved war for war's sake. Loved even killing for killing's sake. I mean, some of the brutalities that they would do just almost for intimidation, fear, even for sport, it would make your stomach turn. So I will not mention them. But Assyria was very far then from God's standard of doing right. God warns Nineveh then, the capital city of a coming judgment. Much to the surprise of all but Jonah, Nineveh genuinely regrets their behavior, and they turn to God for help and for mercy. That's what repentance is. It's it's being sorry and turning to God for help. God relents. Why does he relent? Verse 3, here in Nahum, the Lord is slow to anger. Some people say that is a sign of a weak God, but it's not weak. It's actually strength. He has wrath, but we read also he keeps wrath for his enemies. He keeps back wrath for his enemies. He holds on to until the right time. Second Peter 3.9 in the New Testament puts it this way. The Lord isn't being slow about his promise to return. Jesus isn't being slow about his promise to return. As some people think, no, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, so he's giving more time for everyone to repent. He's giving more time for everyone to turn from their ways, to turn from their hard-heartedness, to turn from even brutal ways, so he can show them mercy in the end. Now, Jonah's angry about this, even skeptical about God's love and mercy towards the Ninevites. And I can't help but wonder that one of his thoughts was, yeah, but God, what if this turning... Back to you doesn't last. And they go back to all their brutal ways, all their wickedness. Be understandable. We've had that thought before. Maybe an estranged brother, an abusive ex-spouse, a bitter friend who all of a sudden binds religion 
Right? They find Jesus. Yeah, we can't help wonder ourselves, okay, let's see how long this lasts. Let's see if this can really go on. What happens to Nineveh? Well, we read in Nahum that that turning to God doesn't last. A generation later, they stop seeking God. They turn back to evil. They turn back to wickedness. And so God addresses them about 100 years later in Nahum. So justice is necessary, not only because God is the standard, but also it's necessary because God is otherwise patient. He, he is unthreatened by bullies. So he can wait out the duration of a bully's life to see if he or she might respond to his kindness and goodness through Jesus Christ. And if they don't respond, then justice is just as sure at age 90 than it is at age 19. So he, he's holding it back. It's not as if he's saying, I don't care about you. I don't care that you're being hurt. I don't care that you're being manipulated or used. He's holding back his anger. So that might, person might see mercy. So that's why justice is necessary. God's the standard. Also, he's going to be patient in the meantime. Why is justice so certain? Part two here. Verse four says this. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. The entire Bible anticipates Jesus, his death on our behalf, his resurrection, victorious resurrection to win us back to himself so we could be with him forever. So no Old Testament event more importantly and vividly anticipates Jesus than the exodus of God's people from Egypt. Whether you read the Psalms, the wisdom books, the the prophecies, the law, you'll read again and again about the exodus. That's what's happening in verse 4. God's again reminding his people of when he delivered them across dry land. And if you're like me, you probably think of Exodus mostly as a happy event. Right? Deliverance for 400 years of slavery in the clear. They cross over the Red Sea. It's all good. Wonderful. Celebration. So what then does Exodus have to do with this issue of final judgment, of justice? Well, Exodus, the Exodus was not only a deliverance from evil, but it was a judgment upon evil. You might remember ten plagues. Those ten plagues were judgments against evil. Which, which might seem, this might seem like a tangent here, but I want to take a moment to consider these judgment plagues of Exodus. If you look at them closely, we don't have to, you can look at this later more in depth, but if you look at them closely, every judgment of God was an almost reversal of what he's doing in Genesis 1 and 2, a reversal of creation. They, they mirror what we read in Genesis 1 or 2 about the goodness of God, the life God gives, the life that he spreads everywhere. Through these plagues, it's a reversal of creation. It's decreation or decomposition. So in Genesis 1 and 2, all things are green and lush. In Exodus, locusts devour everything that's green, all is black and brown. Genesis 1 and 2, God separates the day and the night In Exodus, darkness swallows up light. Genesis 1 and 2, God separates the water and dry ground. But in Exodus, waters crash down upon the armies of the ground. So there's this reversal. In creation, God is creating and composing, but in final judgment, He reverses creation. He decomposes. And here's why that's important. Thanks for that tangent. Here's why this is important. God brings Exodus judgment up here in verse 4. So as to say, hey, you've seen me judge evil. 
You've seen me judge evil. Your people have seen me judge evil. You can be certain I will judge it again. You can be certain I haven't forgotten. I will do it again. In fact, that's exactly what happens. Look in verse 8. But with an overwhelming flood, or overflowing flood, sorry, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now that's interesting. He's going to judge evil soon against these Ninevites with an overflowing flood. Now in 612 BC, 20 to 50 years after Nahum wrote this, and we're sure of this, 20 to 50 years after Nahum wrote this, the Babylonian army lays siege against, for three months against the walls of Nineveh. And they can't break through. They're laying siege, but the walls are too strong. They're too strong. So all of a sudden, the heavens open, the skies open, the del- this deluge of rain just comes pouring down, such that the river, the Tigris River upon which Nineveh sat, flooded so significantly that it broke through the walls of Nineveh, a 12,000-foot section in the wall of Nineveh. So then the armies came streaming through. They swooped in, destroyed Nineveh, and with this one blow, the Assyrian Empire, whoosh, vanished from history. Well, God said so. This is how God executes final justice towards the wicked. He reverses creation. Nineveh was built upon a river because river water from the Tigris was meant to provide water to drink. It was created to irrigate land, to feed livestock, to bring about lush pastures. That's what rivers are for. That's why God provided and created water. And now it's used by God to destroy. Again, he's saying, you've seen me judge evil in the past. Look, I'm going to do it again. And I will do it once more, says Jesus Christ. Jesus taught more about final justice that all of the biblical authors combined because Jesus talked about hell more than all the biblical authors combined. The most common word Jesus used to describe hell is Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley just outside of the walls of Jerusalem in which piles of garbage were burned daily as well as corpses. Corpses of those who were without family, without a family to bury them. So in Mark 9, 43, Jesus speaks of a person going to hell, slash Gehenna, where he says, quote, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It, he, he, that's a strange phrase, right? The worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. He's referring to, to maggots. I know this gets gross, but this is the staunch reality of hell. He's referring to, to maggots that live in corpses on garbage heaps. And when the flesh is consumed, maggots would normally die, right? Jesus says, however, this is what hell is like. The spiritual decomposition of hell never ends. Never ends. In in hell, God reverses everything he did and created a human soul. A human life and soul. This is important, by the way, because when people sometimes preach about hell, they talk about fire, They talk about darkness, which are important metaphors, but I've heard people say to me before, Ryan, that just sounds like a fairy tale. When you talk about it this way, God reversing all that is good in life until there's nothing good left, that may be a true smelling salt that can get their attention. God reverses everything he did in creating human life and soul. The the reasoning, feeling, choosing, giving and receiving warmth, the capacity for joy and ability to, to sing, hum, Hum if you're a singer like me. But everything that's just good, all things we take for granted, make life pleasant, 
even livable, will be reversed. I had this image all week in my head as I was preparing for this sermon and thinking about how God in his final judgment will reverse everything he's created about the human soul, everything good for a human being. And this image I had in my mind um, was a movie, but let me explain. Prior to Netflix streaming, you know, MPEG files on our laptop, uh, even DVDs, the only way to watch a movie in the comfort of your home was by using a VHS tape. Uh, I would have brought one, but turns out when I looked for one, I'm pretty sure my uh, wife got rid of all my VHS tapes, and I was just finding out about most of that today. That's all right, though. Um, and you have a VHS, yeah, it was, it was deserved. There were some important old basketball games on some of those, though. I, anyway, all right. Okay, moment of levity when you're talking about hell. Um, you take a VHS tape, and you put it in something known as a VCR. <laughs> now, I can recall my parents... Uh, purchasing one of these VCRs, pretty soon after they were invented. They really wanted one, so I think we clearly had one of the first models, because when you rewound the movie, and you had to do that when you rented a movie, I always say, be kind, please rewind, and you get fined for it if you didn't anyway. I know, you're like, wow, this is great history, Ryan, thank you. Um, (laughs) But but we had one of these old VCRs, and, and you'd be forced when you rewound the movie to watch the whole movie in reverse. It didn't sort of stop, show you the blue screen, the rewind signal. You actually watched the whole movie go in reverse, and you waited for it, and often it was my job to rewind the movie. So that's what I did. I remember this one time in particular, uh, my parents, somehow my sister and I, watching the movie Ghost, an old movie, um, starts off tragically. This movie, Patrick Swayze's character is kind of a good guy, is killed by his best friend, Patrick Swayze's character returns in ghost form to help his wife, played by Demi Moore, to help her overcome grief. And ultimately, they do overcome grief. Ultimate justice is brought about to the killer. Her life is rebuilt. Happy ending, the end. But the image burnt into my memory was rewinding that movie. There was justice and contentment at the end. Then you rewound through pain, suffering, and finally blood and loss of life. And that was it. And you rewound back to that point. And that image really stuck with me. And I think in part, maybe because I realize now, that is what hell is like. If you were to go home and make a list of everything you were thankful for in life, say you took an hour to write down everything you're thankful for in life, and that list was so long because it was everything big and small, hell would be rewinding every possible good until it was stripped away. That is hell. Now, if Jesus, the the God of love, the author of forever forgiveness, speaks about hell more often in a more stark, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must not only be a critical truth, but somehow a good truth for us to hear. So I want to close on, finally, point three here, why justice is so good. Justice is good. I think the line in this passage that would have most stood out in Nahum it would have most stood out to a Jewish reader is in verse 3. Where we read, the Lord is slow to anger. Look at that in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. Now, a faithful Jew could have completed that sentence immediately. The next sentence, always, the Lord is slow in anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It would be like if I said to you, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. 
Or he was caught red. Right. This would be like for a Jewish person, they would be like, oh, okay, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It was like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. You found it everywhere. Where Jonah saw it. Jonah was like, God, I knew you were gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's who you are, and that's why I'm so mad. So we hear that here. The Lord is slow to anger, but instead, and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. It's like a, it's like a twist. It's a twist that would have got the Jewish reader's attention. And it's crucial because God is saying, I'm giving you a practical example of my steadfast love. You were expecting me to say steadfast love. Well, here's an example of that. The most steadfastly loving thing I can do in the midst of evil is promise you that final justice is coming. Final justice is coming for all the bullies in life, for people who never turn, for people who only do what's wicked. There's final justice coming. And this promise can transform our lives now. It can. Elie Wiesel won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986 for his uh, very famous book, Night. Very short, great book if you want to read it. Wiesel was a, was a Hungarian Jewish teenager when he and his family were deported to Auschwitz, the Auschwitz concentration camp in Germany during World War II. He lost his mother, his sister, and watched his father die. Arguably the most critical portion, though, of his book. He's just arrived after Auschwitz, and Auschwitz, and he watches these, these kids go into the furnace. That's when he says his long night appears. The night in which he watched his God be murdered. Now, Bazell visited my university when I was going to school there, and I had an opportunity to, to interact with him in a small classroom setting. And I asked him about his feelings about that statement, about the night that his God was murdered. Does he still feel the same way? And he actually said, you know, no, I've reversed my course. I believe God was, is alive. But it's interesting. He said one of the reasons is because he read the whole Bible, and he was struck by how often and what Jesus taught about hell. And he said he came to see the beautiful logic of it. He said, quote, I cannot know the heart of each soldier in the concentration camp, good or vile. But furthermore, the, the, the atrocious acts done in the name of justice show me that only one being is capable of meeting out justice. But that frees human beings to be people of mercy. If there's only one person who can possibly mete out justice, that frees us to be people of mercy. Vizel was really just paraphrasing what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, which is an incredibly practical teaching Paul gives here. When you show mercy to someone who has hurt you and others, when when, when you're the first to buy them lunch or buy them a beer, the first to offer to give them a ride home or help them with a project, the first to rush in when they experience a time of need or crisis, it's good news either way. You're, You're heaping burning coals on their head. But that's good news either way because either the mercy shown to them will get their attention such that they will ask what's different about you, want to change, something about them opens up, or they'll give you a hard-hearted response. Hard-hearted response to your mercy, which just adds to God's case against them in the day of judgment. So so when mercy is shown to wrongdoers, they either open up or they harden up. 
That's the reality of what happens when you extend mercy to someone else, undeserved goodness to someone else. Either way, you get to be God's instrument. And that's a heartening thought. Nahum, Nahum's concern, I hope, is clear. His concern here in writing this book is less about what will happen to God's people after death and more about what will happen to those who spend their lives, bullies who spend their lives, hurting, stealing, oppressing, manipulating, and using after they die. Nevertheless, in the midst of the promises about the wicked, he says in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. This is really good news because you may be worrying, what about me? I'm a wrongdoer. Indeed, the line between good and evil cuts right in the middle of the heart of every man. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, that line between good and evil goes right here. Jesus' brother James once said, James chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, it's like he's guilty of breaking all of it. So if God himself is the standard and none of us measure up, then God's justice is deserved. But God also says here, I can be your refuge. How so? Through the God-man, Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced hell. So we might never have to. You guys hear that? How did, how did he experience hell? Well, Jesus on the cross, he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why does he say that? Because he was utterly separated from all of God, all of who God is. God was giving Jesus the Gehenna that we deserve. A really trustworthy theologian named R.C. Sproul says it this way, thousands of people have died on crosses. Others have had more painful, excruciating deaths than that. But only one received the full measure of the curse of God while on a cross. Because of that, I wonder whether Jesus was even aware of the nails and the thorns. On the cross, he was in hell, totally without the grace and presence of God. He became a curse for us so that one day we will be able to see the face of God. So I think we can say this this morning, that Jesus' promise frees us to be people of mercy in the face of evil. And Jesus' death frees me to receive mercy because of my evil. He knows those who take refuge in him. I hope you will too today. Let's pray. God, when we hear words like wrath and vengeance, pursuing enemies into darkness, we think of that only God as, as bad news. And it is horrific, blood-curdling stuff. But at the same time, God, what if we lived in a world where people could bully, use, manipulate, hurt their entire lives and yet be wealthy, have good relationships, live lives others would consider blessed. Where would be the justice in that? There wouldn't be. You would be an otherwise weak God, but you say there will be final justice. There will be. And because there is final justice, there will be, and we can be certain of it, we can be free to be people of mercy, people who extend love and grace and goodness in the face of evil. Please help us look to you for help. Look to you for ideas, for ways that we can show love 
to bullies, to enemies in our lives, to people who get under our skin, is in doing so, it might wake them up to your love and mercy. And if it doesn't, they'll get justice that's deserved. Jesus, we thank you most of all because we know that we are wrongdoers, that you experienced hell on our behalf. Decomposition of your soul only to have yourself rise again. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring that for us. We take refuge in you today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.